Prince Arthur is a Tudor who history has consigned to the B-list. His infinitely more famous younger brother Henry would become England's most iconic king, Henry VIII, but he was a king who should never have been. Arthur was the heir to Henry VII's throne until his tragic death at the tender age of just 15. In this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast, I'm thrilled to welcome Gareth Streeter, history writer, creator of the Royal History Geeks website and social media accounts, and author of Arthur, Prince of Wales, Henry VIII's lost brother, who will join me in a discussion about his book and its subject. Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, Episode 10, Prince Arthur, Henry VIII's Lost Brother, with Gareth Streeter. Welcome to the podcast, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I am slightly, well, I don't know if I'm losing my voice. I'm getting a sore throat, so I may lose my voice. So if I if it doesn't quite hold throughout the episode, it's probably not me having a moment of great emotion, and it's probably just <laughs> meaning that I'm not going to be saying an awful lot tomorrow. <laughs> Fine. Okay, well, we'll try and keep it as contained as possible so that you don't completely lose your voice. Um, so I wondered if you could just provide a bit of a background on where you grew up, what your interests are, and also what you do full-time. Is history a full-time thing for you, or is it a part-time thing? Uh, yes, those are, those are very good places to start. So I um, grew up in, and indeed live in, a today, a city called Plymouth in the far southwest of England. Um, to give it some historical context, it is the city, although it wasn't a city then, where Catherine of Aragon first arrived when she emerged on England's shore ahead of her wedding to Prince Arthur, who we're going to be talking about today. And as Catherine of Aragon herself discovered, it's very, very, very far away from everything else, which makes it quite difficult to get to. But it's a brilliant part of the world to grow up. And there's lots of history, not necessarily in terms of high profile palaces or high profile castles, because the royals of England never really got this far southwest. But there's lovely little pockets of history, both maritime history. I grew up very near in, in, in spitting distance of an ancient Norman castle. And I think just having that around me from a very young age inspired a fascination with the past, which has been lifelong. I became, for reasons I don't really understand, I became a very passionate supporter of the monarchy as a very young adolescent, which inspired me to research our history more and more uh, to get further and further back. And, And in the process, really fell in love, as so many do with the Tudor era, in my case, particularly the the early Tudor era and, and sort of the last pocket of, of Plantagenet rule or Plantagenet chaos or disrule and leading up to the Tudor rule. I don't work full-time in history. I spend an awful lot of time doing history projects um, and, and keeping the social media and my writing and research going. But I am a writer full-time. I'm a sort of corporate, commercial writer, work for myself, freelancer, do that and a bit of public relations, corporate communications. So if you have a reputational publicity need, get in touch. Very good. It's, it's interesting, really, because I think in many respects... We had very similar upbringings in in the sense that I also grew up in a quite a historic 
part of the UK. I grew up on the, the London Surrey border and, and the house I lived in as a child basically overlooked Nonsuch Park, which obviously is, is well known as the home of the sadly lost palace of Nonsuch. And that kind of sparked an interest for me in, in all things Tudor and, and to your point as well, Plantagenet. So quite a similar background in, in many respects. And I'm surprised that you said about Catherine. I thought Catherine arrived in Deal in Kent rather than I didn't know she'd arrived. No, in she she was meant. Uh, you're thinking of Anne of Cleves, who I believe. I am thinking of Anne of Cleves. Completely ignore me. Catherine of, <laughs> Catherine of Catherine of Aragon was supposed to arrive in Southampton, um, but for something happened. And either <laughs> it's funny because I, the real reason she probably ended up in Plymouth and not Southampton is that um, there were it was terrible weather. Right. And so Henry uh, Henry VII dispatched one of his finest captains to go and escort her in. And, and this captain was a Devonian, Devon being the county that Plymouth's in. He probably knew the route to Plymouth better, and given it was it was unsafe, he, he decided to take her that way. But when you when you um, are from Plymouth, everyone always confuses you with Portsmouth and thinks that Plymouth is roughly where Southampton is because that's where Portsmouth is. Right. So there's always been a, a sort of joke for those in the know here that, oh, well, Catherine thought she was going to Portsmouth but ended up in Plymouth, um, uh. which I'm sure is not the case, but it, but it's quite funny. But, I mean, it's a hilarious incident when you read the account of Catherine's arrival because the great and the good had basically all arranged themselves on the road between London and Southampton to greet her in style as she arrives. And you just see it, although although you have to slightly read it between the lines to get the humour of it, that then all these great ladies almost sort of, you know, having to pick up their dresses and do this mad dash across the country, <laughs> try and make sure that she could be meet, she could be met at every point in, in a certain degree of style, um, at every point on the very long road from Plymouth to London as it would have been there. Jeez, I mean, that would have been a very, it's a long journey now, let alone 500 years ago. So, yeah, no, I, yeah. I can... Uh, but I can... a messenger, a messenger got the news of her arrival to Henry so quickly that, and, and that's not necessarily that unusual, but it just makes you realise how quickly they rode just day and night to get mm. news uh, quickly to the king. And I, I suppose these messengers must have been highly skilled at it. And and perhaps, I don't know, I don't know enough about how they used to do it, but perhaps they could go off-road, I don't know, and just... Yeah, I've always wondered that. Like, how did they know they were going in the right direction? Yeah, I know, <laughs> when, I know. You know, there wasn't, there wouldn't have been, you know, signs saying, oh, you're near the M25, three miles away kind of thing. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it's, I suppose it's like everything. It, they had their ways of doing it. They right. did, but it, it does. It's when it always annoys me when people say, "Oh, in the past they were so stupid because they thought bloodletting was how you cured someone, or they thought this about the stars." Like they were not stupid; they could ride no. very quickly from Plymouth to London <laughs> without sat nav. You know, I couldn't do that. No, so, exactly. Maybe, yeah, pretty clever people. They're much more clever than I think we give them credit, and I think that they're also a lot more. Just advanced and, hyg and hygienic as well, I think, is something that people often get quite wrong about the Tudors. I mean, I remember when I first read Tracy Borman's book, The Private Lives of the Tudors, I was shocked by some of the the stories in there about actually the fact that Hampton Court had hot and cold running water and things like that. You just mm -hmm. don't necessarily expect. But, uh, but you know, they were a lot more advanced than I think we give them credit mm -hmm. for Absolutely. sure. So just a couple of questions just to get to know you in a bit more detail. If you could pick a single moment from history to go back to and witness what would it be oh that's such a good question i, I suppose i suppose there's a few morbid answers aren't there like <laughs> it would be 
I, I guess the ultimate question is, everyone wants to know what happens to the princes of the tower, don't they? So I suppose yes. we, I would not want to witness the death of those poor young lads. But if I could witness something that gave me that final piece of information as to who, I'm pretty sure I do know who was responsible, but who was responsible, <laughs> that, that, that would be amazing. Um, but I suppose... Beyond that, there are other little things that would perhaps be less high profile, but and you'll you'll have these examples from your own studies as well. But there's just a little thing you'd like to settle in your own mind. And I'm trying to think of a good example, but little things like this is really, really geeky and quite niche. But Henry the Seventh, because he was crowned without a queen and we don't have a record of his coronation service i'd just quite like to know how that was handled were, were, were mm. female members of the nobility completely excluded because they had no queen to be there with or was there another role how was that done uh, I, it's not that it's not particularly interesting it's just something that i really thought about for the first time when i was writing my book on arthur and would just like to see for myself no, I, I i totally get it and i think that there are also those moments where you would love to go well was history just making a drama out of something that wasn't there. So, you know, we're always told, for example, about the fact that the crowds at Anne Boleyn's coronation were really mm. hostile and booed and things mm. like that. And I would love to go back and see, was that really the case? And on that, do you have a controversial Tudor opinion? Um, Probably I do. I'm sure I do. I've got many controversial Tudor opinions. I suppose one that's quite controversial at the moment, there's a lot of attempts going round to rehabilitate the memory of Mary I in particular. And I instantly am suspicious of that. I think that it's always good to rehabilitate someone's reputation in the sense that it's always good to understand everyone in context. But I've seen quite a lot of very spurious things flying around about social media, sort of talking about how she called far less people than Henry VIII or Elizabeth I, because they've added in literally every execution that happened in England under Henry VIII and under Elizabeth I, and then compared them just to the heresy burnings under Mary, which is completely like comparing apples and oranges. So it's not so much an opinion, because I've decided when I finally get a moment, this isn't in my wheelhouse at the moment, I'm not writing about Mary or Elizabeth or Henry at the moment, but I'd really like to try and sit down with as much source material as I can get my hands on and make my own assessment as to how fair those reassessments are. So my my controversy at the moment, I suppose, is not that I think those things are wrong, but that I'm very, very sceptical about them. And I think we're probably being a bit too loose with a lot of the information that goes around. I thought you were going to say... Yeah, I guess so. I think there is a desire to change the perception about Mary. And I'm one of those people that is, I suppose, slightly on the fence about, about her. I, I think she's incredibly fascinating. And mm, is, yeah. I think that she's been done wrong by history in many respects. But equally, I think that it's always incredibly dangerous to psychoanalyze people that lived 500 years ago. Yeah. So I'm always quite cautious. I thought you were going to say that you're not a big fan of Anne Boleyn. Because I mean by fan of Anne Boleyn. I've said that to you, <laughs> I've said that to you before, haven't I, at an Anne Boleyn event. Which yeah, we were at Hebrew and you said, you know, I'm just not really a fan. <laughs> and Tracy Borman nearly fainted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose I'm not a fan. It depends what you mean by fan. So I'm, there's a Facebook group um, called Anne Boleyn Obsessed, which I'm part of. And I definitely fit that because I am obsessed with Anne Boleyn. She's probably the, the mid-shooter character, if we can call her a mid-shooter character, that I think is most interesting to study. Yeah. Certainly the most interesting to study of Henry VIII's wives. I think she's the most consequential queen. So and, I agree, totally. And, and one of the most consequential people of the 16th century. And I think she was an ins- had an inspiring intellect. I think she had... Incredible political ability and genuine religious conviction. 
I just don't think I'd have got on with her. The things I value most of people are kindness and a desire to include. And I'm not sure that those were necessarily Anne's qualities, which isn't to say she had none of those things. I, I can kind of see where you're coming from in some respects. I'm, I think that she was probably a woman who could be, it could be quite easy to dislike in, in some mm. respects. Well, many did. Well, exactly. Um, which is why, you know, I think she has also why she is so infamous and, and sort of so hard to pin down is who and what was the true Anne Boleyn in many respects. Mm. Do you have a sort of what is a, a Tudor misconception that you would love to change? Oh, I think the biggest one is the that Henry VIII had a brain injury after he fell off his horse in um, 1536. Um, the big misconception to that, and, and the the idea being with that, is it even a theory? I don't know, or is it just, just a, a myth that goes around on, on social media and a few history books? The idea is that Henry used to be, which is certainly true, this great Renaissance prince who was kind, courageous, a man of valour, a man of honour, a man of decency and intelligence. And then we know him in the end of his reign as this tyrant, um, who was short-tempered and who would chop people's heads off and chopped his wife's heads off. And because this incident where he did have a genuine accident, he did fall from his horse um, while um, while jousting in, in 1536. And then he later had his wife, Amberlynn, who we'd just be talking about, put to death. People have been searching for what happened to change his personality. People mm. noticed that he fall off his horse and have... Because there is some misinformation that's contemporary flying around saying that he was either without speech for two hours or lay unconscious for two hours, people thought, okay, he hit his head, brain injury, that changes personality. However, those two sources both come from secondhand gossip, which originated from the French court. They're from highly unreliable witnesses, not unreliable because they're unreliable people, but because they're very far away and they're listening to gossip. And much of what they go on, they... It's the same source that says that Anne Boleyn was pregnant years before she ever married Henry VIII. They're just full of misinformation because they're only picking up on gossip yeah. about the English court. They're, they're not full of misinformation about other things that they're more exposed to. Whereas the sources writing in England, including the imperial ambassador, who would have who made it his business to work out if there was any thing amiss going on in the English court to report faithfully to the emperor, his master, he said the king took a tumble but he was hurt. He was without harm. He wasn't hurt. You know, it looked traumatic, but actually he was fine, which doesn't play into this notion that Henry was unconscious for two hours, which seems to be where the brain injury theory comes from. And the reason I think it's so important is regardless of whether it, what did or didn't happen, the idea that there needs to be a pivotal moment that changed Henry is to misunderstand Henry because that ruthlessness, that callousness is there from the very beginning of the reign and even perhaps in his childhood. And you do see signs of it and you see that side, you see that growing through the 1520s and he'd already committed um, people to horrific executions mm. over the great matter before the accident. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things, it's trying to make excuses for behavior that was just fundamentally wrong, isn't it really? It's 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 that, but it's also trying to pretend that these things aren't human. And it's trying to say, well, there must be an illness. There must be a psychosis. Rather than yeah. recognising, we're, we're a pretty ragtag bunch, us human beings. Yeah. We do some pretty awful things. And I'd love to believe that if I had Henry's life, I'd be better. And maybe I would be, but there's no guarantee of that. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's, so it's, it's, it's both those two things, really. And I just think it's not a good study of history. And it's not a good study of humanity. 
Well, I mean, I wasn't expecting that, I have to admit, because it's one oh, really? of those it's one of those stories about Henry that I think is very well trodden. Mm. And you see it countlessly brought up by really notable historians um, who who use it as a sort of a, a as a turning point in the king's reign. It's worth checking out Alison Weir on it because she yeah. she 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 destroys those arguments much better than than I ever could. And I think what happened is you do, I mean, even in Eric Ives, who's probably the best biographer of Anne Boleyn. Totally. Never lived. Even he has a reference to that source, which does talk about Henry Ligo conscious for two hours. But probably until you're looking at that issue just in isolation, which you've only started to do once people then constructed the brain theory bit to it, you realise that that source is just not useful evidence to bring into that. You've got to look at the evidence which is closer to home, but from but from a source who was very keen to dramatise what was going on, and even he plays it down. So... If we can now move on to the, the meat of the conversation, which is about Prince Arthur, the eldest child born to Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. You've written a book, Arthur, Prince of Wales, Henry VIII's Lost Brother, which was released by Pen and Sword in May of this year. Can you just tell me a bit about how you came to write this book? Was it something that Pen and Sword approached you with? How did you come to the subject of Arthur? Mm, well, it's really interesting. It's a really good um, question because... One of the things I found, and I don't know if you found this about, because we're both fundamentally, we've come to to people's attention through doing social media stuff Mm. on history. And what is very interesting, I've noticed, is that when you just put a lot of stuff out there, it's sometimes easier for other people to see what you're really interested in more than it is what you're interested in. Yeah. If that makes sense. Because I have always understood myself to be fundamentally very interested in the history of the British monarchy and an active supporter of the British monarchy today. Interested in the whole history with with a kind of bias toward the 15th and 16th century. So I was, with that in mind, starting to sort of work up a few ideas of, oh, I'd like to write a book one day. What, what should I write about? Uh, and I started doing it. I still would like to come back to this one day. Some research around the fall of Richard II in 1399 and the rise of the House of Lancaster, just mm. because I thought that's a time that people don't talk that much about, but it's very important for what happens later. Um, but it was interesting. That sort of, I was doing it in the background, but I never, it never really took off, even in my own heart, probably, although there's stuff that I'd definitely like to revisit. And then at around that time, um, Someone, uh, a well-known historian on um, social media, posted a few, uh, I think it was an Instagram story on Henry VII. And at the end, he said, if you'd like to read more about Henry VII, check out these accounts. And one was um, Nathan Amin, who, of course, is the um, founder of the Henry Tudor Society. That makes sense. But then he put mine down as well. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So you see me as quite a sort of Henry VII-oriented person and then i was yeah that's that is totally true and then about a week later i got pen and sword got in touch to see whether i'd like to write about arthur and i thought this does kind of make sense because that is what i'm interested in i'm interested very much in the late 15th century the early uh tudor era the reign of henry the seventh and to study that from arthur's vantage point which is a very interesting vantage point to look at that era from in something that's not really been done before, there are some very, very important, more academic books on Arthur, but a more kind of narrative, cohesive storytelling book about Arthur would be really exciting to do. So I jumped at the opportunity. Again, it's it's very similar to, to my story in some respects. I'd written a blog post about the rise and fall of the Pole family. Mm. But 
hadn't I'd done that because they were part of the wider Tudor story. It certainly wasn't a family that I had any expectation of writing a book about. And then Pen and Sword wrote to me and said, oh, we've seen this blog that you wrote. Would you be interested? And I sort of said, sure, and just went from there, really. So with Prince Arthur, he's not a character that is explored in great length, really. There are obviously, to your point a second ago, there are much more sort of scholarly studies and, and, you know, and, and that is out there. But he's not a character in the great, scheme of things he's not Tudor A-list if we if we think yeah. about depictions in film and television in both fact and fictional books he's not at the same level understandably as his brother Henry VIII or even his father mm. now whilst I suppose that's equal parts daunting I can also mm. imagine it's quite exciting because did it allow you in many respects sort of cut your own path in examining his life and sort of where you wanted to go with it yeah, it did, because it gave, it gave me the freedom to really get back to the original source material and try to construct the narrative that I thought was the right place to start as, as a first cut. And then, yes, there was some debate and some dialogue with what other people were in to engage with. But what I didn't do was come to this from the perspective that there's a real established debate and dialogue going on about a particular set of issues around Arthur. There are, there are a couple of issues where there are, but for the most part, for most of his life, there isn't a really established discussion about it, which, I, which I'd which i have to use as my starting point, because mm. if you come to write a book about Henry VIII, you're not going to just pretend that no book about Henry VIII's ever been written before. A big chunk of that is going to be discussing other interpretations of Henry VIII and his impact and, and his personality and all the rest of those things. And then putting your own slant on it, a bit more like a, a university essay, I suppose. Whereas coming to Arthur, where it wasn't, I would not say it was a blank slate, but it was much a clearer playing field. Mm. I could just start with the sources, construct the narrative that I felt made sense from looking at the sources and build it all out from there. And that was really exciting. Yeah, and, and that, I think that makes sense. And I, I think that's, again, a reason why, where there is a book about a subject who isn't so well covered, it just it allows people to have a, a chance to get to know someone that they kind of know about, but not at any great length. And I suppose for you as the writer, there is a certain level of freedom in that, for sure. Because of the brevity of his life in many respects, and the fact that he, in the grand scheme, isn't particularly consequential or what he's he's consequential in in, in many respects but he's not he isn't a, the a-list of the sort of the tudor yes. hierarchy for that reason was it quite difficult when we went in to examine the records was it quite tough to find a lot about him in the records it's very varied and that's the interesting thing with arthur so with arthur you have about three or four days of his life over the course of his life, which are chronicled in minute detail. There's a, that's the detail. You have four of these four days where you know everything. Yeah. You know, literally, you know, almost toothpaste he used to brush his teeth with. Kind of thing. <laughs> Obviously, that's that's a joke. But, you know, you know everything about that day. You know what he was wearing, who he was with, what he did. And then you have whole years where we're not even sure where he lived, you know? Yeah. So you've got that real, real uh, diversity of source quantity. Um, but there's certainly enough there for um to, to string a cohesive narrative of his life together and to make a reasonable stab at speculating what kind of person he was. But that bit is obviously far more subjective than other parts of it. It's also in these instances, you can also look at the activities of what other people were doing at that time Absolutely. to also try and 
narrow down where was he, what was he doing? Because if, and again, I don't, I don't want to talk about my book, but Margaret mm. Pohl and her husband were very heavily involved in Arthur's childhood because he was sent mm. to rural Wales as the Prince of Wales. And so they were very heavily involved in yeah, his yeah, upbringing. Yeah. And I suppose you can also look at their stories to, to inform what was going on with Arthur at the time. So you can almost Absolutely. look at other characters to to sort of narrow down the sort of the window of where was he what was he doing who was he with kind of absolutely thing. and when i when i read your book which i'm looking forward to doing i'll probably learn something about um about the poles who were mm. you know were around arthur for much of his life and that'll probably that'll probably help something fall into place for me uh, that i've been thinking about about arthur um but he he it's it, it's it's really interesting because different people approach history books from different perspectives. Some people want to say, "I literally want to know just what's absolute fact and don't tell me anything else." And other people say, "Well, I'd really like a bit of interpretation and speculation as to what it could have been." And my view is that anyone that buys a book like mine or a book like yours wants that. They want you to try and fill in the blanks intelligently and to be clear about what you're doing and to be honest about it. But they want you to make those kinds of. of bits and pieces of speculation. And I also was very aware that there were events that were happening in his father's reign, particularly around rebellions to his father's throne, which which we don't know what Arthur thought about, but we do know that he knew about them. We don't know exactly what he knew, but we knew that he knew about them. And it's unthinkable that wouldn't have affected him greatly knowing that that was going on. So I have devoted more time than I think others would to conspiracies affecting his father and then try to tie that in to how Arthur may have been thinking and feeling about that. Certainly when his father's throne looked less secure, that's when Arthur's marriage negotiations to Catherine of Aragon, his eventual wife, really suffered because no one was going to marry their child to a prince who might not ever come to the throne. And again, Arthur would have known that and and that would have had some impact on him. Yeah, that would inform, you know, that would affect anyone's life because it would also so inform his own sense of security, wouldn't it? Mm. You know, that mm. would that would be completely dictated by what was going on. Absolutely. And although we don't have any source material on it, I think it would be remiss in a book about Arthur's life not to mention those things. And, and even, even to just to give the reader an opportunity to think about how it might have affected Arthur, even if we we are never going to fundamentally know. One of the things that sometimes said of Arthur, well, you might be able to answer this question, Mm. is was he named after the supposed King Arthur of legend? Because it's one of the things of history that with Arthur dying when he did, we Mm. were robbed of what would have been King Arthur I. We're told that Henry VII traced his own lineage supposedly back to this king of legend. Did you find anything in the records that oh, showed yeah. there's, that there's, this was there's, there's, there's no doubt that Arthur's name is an allusion to um, the legendary King Arthur. So just to give a bit of context on that, the Tudors probably genuinely believed because of their Welsh connections, they were descended from the ancient kings of Britain, of which Codwalder was the most famous one who probably was also real, who was probably both a historical figure and a figure of legend. And they genuinely did believe and possibly were descended from him. And then they alluded to the fact that they would also be therefore descended from Arthur. They didn't actually say that explicitly, but it was heavily alluded to. And because uh, two things happened when the Tudors took the throne in 1485, one was that 
they were obviously on a quest for legitimacy. So they wanted to create imagery that showed they weren't just the new kids on the block. They had an ancient right to the throne. So it made sense to start playing up this connection to being a Welsh dynasty to the ancient kings of Britain. And so, as I say in the book, the Arthur imagery was used not just to show that Henry VII was a legitimate king, but in the wilder moments of Tudor propagandists' imagination, he was the first legitimate king in over 800 years since the Anglo-Saxons had come in but that existed on one level but the reason they probably went so big on the Arthur thing around the time of Prince Arthur's birth was that about a year before Arthurian legends and Arthurian literature had been translated into English and printed for the first time ever. They'd been the noble and upper gentry classes would have known about Arthurian literature for a long 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 time before that because Mm. they would have read it Um, in both Latin and in French, but it had not existed in English and it had not been printed on the printing press before. So Arthur was basically, King Arthur was enjoying a real popular, what we'd call a popular wave. Yeah, a re-emergence. A re-emergence, and it was more populist than it had ever been before. So Henry decided to probably to assert, to ride that popular wave by calling his son Arthur. And he had at great cost and at great inconvenience, he had Arthur born in Winchester, which had been the sort of Anglo-Saxon place uh, to, to, to rule and have your kid born, but had not been the fashion for a very, very long time. Probably because the Le Morte Arthur, which is the book that had come out about a year before, had said that Winchester was where Camelot had once stood. Yeah, so the round table birth, and all that. Exactly. So Arthur's birth in Winchester is a direct allusion to the Arthurian legend. So there's no there's no doubt about that. What's interesting is it doesn't seem to have played a, a, a great role in Arthur's subsequent upbringing. In other public ceremonies, there isn't much Arthurian imagery evoked. And that's probably just because after the Battle of Stoke Fields in 1487, where Henry sees he's got the primary support of the gentry and the nobility, even those that have been mostly loyal to the House of York before, he probably just feels that legitimacy isn't quite as necessary to stress. And the humanist learners who Henry VII loved that had brought over to England, they didn't like treating the Arthurian literature as history. They were much more sceptical about that. So no one really was buying into it. And after a while, it just seemed like it wasn't necessary or important. Yeah, they didn't need to bang that drum anymore, basically. Exactly. And no one really, and no one thought, no one thought it was true anyway. So people people did but people that Henry VII intellectually admired his poets weren't really getting on board with with having it up because they would much rather have held it back to the ancient Greeks because that's what the Renaissance was all about when you were doing your research was there anything that came up that just really surprised you that was like a massive shock I wouldn't say it was a massive shock, but when I went into the research, I was expecting to deconstruct the kind of Victorian narrative of Arthur being a very sickly, very weak, hence dying early child, because a lot of more recent accounts which talk about Catherine of Aragon or talk about Henry VIII when he was young have quoted sources which talk about Arthur being quite tall, quite handsome, quite strong as a boy. Um, However, what surprised me was that there was more in that kind of Victorian narrative that I'd initially suspected. And actually, yes, there are source materials that refer to Arthur being tall and well-developed and strong when he's 10, 11. But actually, both there are source materials. There are source materials that suggest that's not the case as he gets into adolescence. And perhaps more tellingly, there are certain things that 
stop being said that you might think would have carried on being said if his health had continued to thrive. So actually, while I don't think he was the ever sickly child of Victorian imagination, he wasn't the robust, vigorous teenage prince that just so happened to succumb to the plague, which we're more likely to hear about in books today. He wasn't that. Fascinating. Okay. Because there is this belief that he was struck down you know, and that prior to that, he had been quite sort of a bit like his his younger brother would be lusty and, and strong and affable, but was sort of taken down by this illness quite suddenly. So that's quite interesting to hear that there is there is definitely more to it than that perception has been made. There is. There is a lot, a lot more to that. It's, it's not necessarily as extreme as it was once presented, but it's not extreme the other way either. One of the things that I think also comes across quite a lot in works of historical fiction and, and sort of, I suppose leans into that Victorian perception is that when compared against his brother, that he was quiet and weak and where Henry sort of came busting in and, you know, there's the famous story of, at the wedding of Catherine and Arthur where Henry throws his jacket off and dances yeah. around just in his shirt. And there's this perception, I suppose, that Arthur was very much a chip off the old block of Henry Seventh, and that Henry Eighth was much more like his maternal grandfather, Edward IV. Is that mm. something that you, having now studied him and written a book, would say is actually quite accurate? You know, what did you see from his personality? Is mm. that perception one that you think there is actually quite a lot of evidence to back up? Or is there more to him that was much more like his Yorkist side as well? I think there's something in it. I think it's probably broadly true. I don't think we can exclude the possibility that Arthur also had moments where he was rambunctious or lively or Yorkist, if you like, like Edward IV. We can't exclude that possibility, but certainly there is nothing like that incident with Henry, where he dances so flamboyantly at the wedding and is applauded by his parents for doing so. There's no evidence of Arthur ever being like that. And it's possible, I think, in Arthur's public appearances, and there are a few, the stuff people comment on are how, you know, he's steady, he delivers it very well in a very mature, grown-up, kind of kind of way despite being so young and he is confident he does get praised for confidence but yes it comes across as a more serious and more studious confidence rather than a flamboyancy and i suspect that was probably almost entirely to do with their positions in the family the roles that they were being prepared for just about to say yeah i, I think so i mean it's certainly the idea i i, I went into this because you know there's also an idea that arthur was very much henry the seventh son and Henry was very much Elizabeth York's son. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, that's a bit of a lazy trope, but I think we overdo all this Henry raised among the women. But actually, I did think there was more There was more evidence to that than I thought. So if they had, for example, important dignitaries over visiting ambassadors, Arthur goes with his father to meet them, and they have a chat with them. And then they then go to the next room, and they meet the Queen, they meet Elizabeth York, and Henry. Yeah, and I think it's also something that we still... In many respects, we still see now is is that balance between the heir presumptive who has to, by virtue of their birth and what's expected of them, that they have to toe the line. I mean, even if we look at the current royal family, you know, if you look at the second sons, Prince Andrew, Prince Harry, both of whom have been much more controversial figures in many respects than their older brothers. And as mm. much as you, we can't psychoanalyze, it is that thing of, I think, if you're brought up to act in a certain way and you are your position and again with the queen herself the queen and princess margaret there was a huge difference there in their personalities and i think that that's probably where we can look at with prince arthur is that yes he probably had a very good sense of humor he probably had 
lots of friends, but in many respects, he understood what was expected of him and towed the line accordingly. I think the air and spare parallels, which you saw with, with Elizabeth and Margaret, with William and Harry, I think they probably are there to an extent with mm. with Arthur and with Henry. I mean, Arthur and Henry would have known each other less well than any yes. of those more recent examples because they were brought up very far from each other. But, you know, it does mean that Arthur, the heir has that very clear role, whereas the spare has much more freedom, but has to find their own feet as well, which can be in equal measure exciting and daunting. There's so much talk, isn't there, about, oh, Henry VIII was going to go into the church, which is almost certainly not the case. And, or he just, I mean, Henry, Henry VIII would have had a pretty rigorous upbringing too. And he would have been, he was in schooled in a, in a robust education and all the that. He would be prepared to be a great nobleman of the realm and do very sort of serious manly things. So he wasn't just sitting around sewing or whatever with his mother, but he didn't have the purpose that Arthur had. And Arthur was probably the most prepared Prince of Wales in history. Every single part of his household, of his upbringing and of his life was structured to prepare him for kingship. Can you tell us a bit more about, you know, who his friends were, what we his know, tastes were, what, you know, what did he like to eat? Because again, these are things that I suppose are quite human, but tell us a bit more about the the, the, well, the man and the boy that he was. We know a bit about his friends. So when he was about 10 years of age, his household seems to have been slightly rejigged to bring into his immediate circle a group of very young men who were from the upper reaches of the gentry or the higher nobility to be his companions, effectively. They all had various different roles. Um, but some were about his, they were either sons of significant noblemen or of significant officers of the crown, generally speaking. And some were about his age and some were about five years older. So that was the sort of range. Mm. And they were so well put together because that group represented every regional strand of interest that Arthur would have to understand when he eventually became king. You know, they, they, he, so some of his best mates basically were going to be from every corner of the kingdom in terms of the influential people. They, to an extent, represented strands of different political affinity in terms of York, Lancaster, Tudor. Although, of course, there was no one there whose loyalty was in question because they were in, in yeah. too close proximity to Arthur. And we don't know exactly what they did and what they got up to together. But it, if it is, these are the young men that Arthur supposedly would one day brag to that he had spent the night in night Spain, in Spain. Thirsty worse after his, after his marriage. So if that comment is to be believed, it does suggest a degree of, of young laddish bawdy banter, which I hope did exist. Not because I love young laddish bawdy banter, but I like the thought <laughs> of Arthur having people he could relax with and be close to, and of course, the power dynamic would never be entirely equal, of course not. But I wonder as well whether that's why a few were maybe a few years older, just to help slightly address that power dynamic a bit. Because you can imagine if Arthur was 10 or 11 and he's spending a lot of time with boys that are 15 or 16, he's going to absolutely hero worship them, isn't he? Just because totally. that's how yeah. you know, adolescent psych psychology works. And I like the thought that he had those people around him who, who were looking out for him. And at his funeral... Um, to, to go to jump to the most morbid point, there are a lot of tears and a lot of very deep grief at his funeral. And I know, and all these young men were there and other officers of his household were there. 
uh, quite a strong poll contingent there. And I know that those people are mourning their futures because they were being geared up to basically be the rulers of the realm when Arthur became king. But I really do believe they were also mourning the boy that they loved as well. That's really fascinating. And I think that one of the other assumptions that is quite easy to make is that, you know, we we talked a moment ago about the fact that Henry VIII was inherently more Yorkist and that was he therefore weighted towards that. Because when we look at when Henry VIII comes to the throne, he immediately raises up his York cousins, that sort of white rose network, who had suffered quite a lot during the reign of Henry VII. Mm. I mean, certainly when Margaret Pole was made a widow, her life for quite a long time became incredibly difficult. But based on what you've just said there, the, there was at least enough sense to place Yorkists in Arthur's retinue. Oh, yes. I mean, Henry VII's whole supporter base was Yorkist, really. Um, I think it certainly is true that the Yorkist nobility didn't get so much for looking in the reign of Henry VII. But I think that's probably more an emphasis of his trust of very few people. But no, in terms of all the places that they needed to be, I mean, obviously the next generation of Poles, had Arthur lived, would have been very close to Arthur. One, of course, is named for Arthur. Mm. There's a whole ad in um, one of Arthur's sons is is Arthur. Arthur Paul. Yeah, for Prince Arthur, presumably. Um, And in, in that scenario, they would have been very close to him. Whether Arthur would have did what Henry did in terms of reviving the Yorkist nobility in terms of the titles. Um, she was Countess of Salisbury, wasn't she, Margaret Pohl? She was Countess of Salisbury, yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. She was. She won her title four years into the reign of Henry VIII. She went back to him and basically said, this was taken from me, I would like it back. And, and he gave it to her in, in her own right. Yes. Um, she was the, one of only three women who was a, a peeress in her own right across the whole reign of Henry VIII. And presumably because she was a widow at that point, that was easier if her husband had still been alive, it would have been harder not to make him, I suppose, de jure Earl of... I don't yes. know. It's an academic question, isn't it? Because we, we don't know. I think what Arthur would have done differently to Henry is, bear in mind, if Arthur had come to the throne, that would obviously mean Arthur hadn't died. And if Arthur hadn't died, Elizabeth of York wouldn't have died. And I like to think that as a result, Henry VII would not have grown so insecure in his latter years and probably less tyrannous. Mm. So... Henry VIII came in having to correct. I think Arthur would have come in with less to correct, but also I think Arthur was much more primed into his father's style of government and it would have been seamless. People talk about Arthur's establishment in Ludlow as being a government in training, which to an extent it was, but it was more like a government in waiting. It was doing the business of governing a big chunk of the country. And I think that would have just seamlessly transferred to governing uh, governing from Westminster effectively and, and governing the nation. So I don't think, whereas it seems, and I, I might not study this as closely as as you have, but that in Henry VIII's first 10 years, he kind of goes on this experiment to kind of revive the nobility and rule much more like a medieval king in terms of war with France and rule through the nobility rather than through clerics or officers who work their way up on merit and all that sort of thing. And it gets chaotic until <coughs> Wolsey comes along and really grabs the machinery of government back and, and, and then develops that something quite sophisticated, which Cromwell later takes on and evolves even further. With Arthur, I don't think you have that discontinuity because I think Arthur's already in that wheel and already in that machine. So government would have continued more seamlessly, I suspect. I completely agree with you. I think that that's the thing about Henry VIII's early reign 
in particular is very much about undoing his father's work in, in yeah. many respects. You know, and that's why we see almost the immediate execution of Emerson and Dudley. You know, they were almost immediately executed by Henry VIII and they were seen as the sort of the villains who had almost in many respects cajoled Henry VII into becoming such a miser. Mm-hmm. And I, I completely agree that had Arthur come to the throne as he'd expected, had Elizabeth of York not died when she did, that it would have been an incredibly different England. It would have been a very different landscape that he inherited. And therefore, he kind of why Henry VIII did go about his sort of quite bombastic restructure of England, which also involved the elevation of that wider white rose network, as we call it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think Henry... It's, it's quite probable that Margaret Beaufort had it in for Epson and Dudley because I think she felt they tarnished her son's last years and legacy. Well, certainly David Starkey convincingly argues that she's responsible. But yes, Arthur would have had a just such a different setup. And maybe even his mother would have been there with him for the first 15 odd years of, of his reign. She was young enough to be. Yeah, she died on her 37th birthday, didn't she? Yeah, which I used to read in history books. Oh, she had a good innings. Now it doesn't seem quite so old. <laughs> Yeah. A, a sort of average innings, I suppose, by the standards of the time. So, so with that in mind, then I suppose this leads on nicely to to the next point. Do you think? And it's I know it's so difficult to say, but knowing what you know about Arthur, do you think he would have made a good king? It turns what you mean by good. I think it would be an effective king because we love to see him as a contrast to Henry VIII. We love to assume his reign would have been a complete contrast to Henry VIII. And in some ways it would have been. I've already said there'd have been less chaos, there'd have been more organisation, there'd have been more efficiency, more effective government in the early years. You do have very effective government in later years of Henry VIII. But in the early years, you would have had that. But it would have been pretty ruthless. Mm. Uh, I don't think Arthur... Arthur I say, as I say in the book, Arthur was not being raised to be a nice man. He wasn't being raised to be a cruel one either, per se. But there are so many incidences which Arthur must have known about and may even have been part of the decision-making process in where he saw how ruthless you have to be. Of course, including the horrible crime of what happened to your Margaret, Margaret Pohl's brother, um, the Earl of Warwick. Arthur almost certainly knew about that stitch up Um, because he was at an age where he was taking an active interest in anything Mm. that affected his marriage, which as we know that incident was largely about. So he was Ruth. He would have been ruthless. And I I suspect like his father, he'd have been more likely to make you bankrupt than to chop your head off. But I think he would have done that reasonably liberally. And there would still have been things in the later 16th century that Henry ultimately had to face, that Arthur would have had to face. So would those big things of Henry VIII's reign have been different? Well, we don't know. England would still have been on a rocky road financially when you get to the 1530s with issues around inflation and other economic pressures. The Tudors were centralisers. They liked to have everything under their control. Mm. Would all this money lying about in monasteries have escaped Arthur's notice? I don't know that it would have done. I mean... Well, especially so- given how his father's sort of fiscal knowledge and approaches to finances, I think, had he had the guile and the, I suppose, the, the wherewithal to do it, would he have done the same well, thing? Well, quite. So... And, and partly, Henry VII didn't need to because he was able to get money through other means. But yes. those other means were running out you know, when you get to the 1530s. So I'm not saying Arthur would have done any of those things. 
the only point I try and make about Arthur's kingship is we shouldn't just assume that England would be radically different or that it would have been a period of mercy and grace in the way that it wasn't. We just don't know, but we can't assume it would have been. Sort of similarly, and I think this is something that people are beginning to wake up to a bit more about Edward VI, for example, is the fact that when we look at these tragic figures who die very young, you know, he died at 15, Arthur was nearly 16. So they're snuffed out very early on. And so we can't know what could have happened. But I think if you look at the story of Edward VI, for example, he had all of the makings of becoming just as, if not more, tyrannical than his father. And I think more. I think more. Yeah, I, I, I really agree. I think more. Edward's reign does not have any moderation or, the, or no. that tolerance. And had it not been for the fact that his own sister Mary was effectively under the protection of a foreign superpower, she might well have been very severely punished. With Mary, so thinking of, of Mary, we obviously have to talk about her her mother and the fact that she was married to Prince Arthur. There is obviously the really big question is, did Arthur and Catherine of Aragon consummate their marriage? Now, we are never, ever going to be able to prove either way what happened. Mm-hmm. What is your opinion? What I'd encourage people to do if they're interested in this question is to really focus on the conversations that happened in the aftermath of Arthur's death. There are many sources that on both sides of this debate get quoted quite liberally. One being, which we've already referred to, Arthur supposedly saying to his mates, I've just spent the night in the midst of Spain and, you know, Willoughby, bring me some ale because marriage is thirsty work or whatever. That's a paraphrase, whatever he said. Um, And then similarly, on the other side, sources saying how a servant heard um, the women talking about how Arthur had been so sickly and Catherine had said he'd not been able to do anything to her and they all laughed at him because he was so weak and sickly. All of that evidence comes from 25 to 30 years after Arthur's death. And it arises on both sides, either in Spain or in England, in the most highly charged of political circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong or necessarily discounted, but it's hardly a good place to start the debate or to mm. start the conversation. Whereas I would encourage people to really focus on the letters that are exchanged between England and Spain in the weeks, months and months after Arthur's death, when they're talking about the possibility of Catherine, Arthur's widow, marrying Henry VIII. And in that correspondence, it is clear that nobody believes that whether Arthur or Catherine had consummated their marriage was a major barrier either way. People do not believe that if she had, it rules out the possibility of her marrying Henry. That is, Henry VIII would later take great issue with it. It was not a great issue at the time. Ferdinand and Isabella knew they could get papal dispensation because they'd done exactly the same thing with one of their other daughters who had married her sister's ex, her sister's widow, widower. So they had precedent for this. Isabella and Ferdinand go about, or Isabella goes about establishing the facts she believes she has a good authority from Catherine's servants that the marriage was not consummated. In England, it was not tradition to inspect the sheets after the wedding, but it was in Spain, which may well mean that the Catherine's Spanish servants did it. As in, they did check the sheets. Either way, in England, they want to treat the marriage as consummated just to be belt and braces and to get the dispensation just in case which again shows they don't think it's a major issue as to whether it happened or not. Despite that, 
And Isabella's happy to go along with that plan, but she maintains that she doesn't think it was. And she has at this point absolutely no reason to maintain a pretense because it doesn't matter either way. Yet she feels it didn't happen. She has access to Catherine's devoted servants who are committed to Isabella and they tell her it hadn't happened. People in England maybe believe it did, but what was their source likely to be for believing that it did? Probably Arthur. And would Arthur be the first teenage boy in history who maybe felt he'd underperformed in the bedroom and therefore exaggerated his prowess the next day? I leave it at that. This is one of the biggest what-ifs in history. Hmm. I mean, it, it truly is. It's up there with the princes in the tower. Uh, you know, it, it's, it is a huge, huge question that we're never going to be able to say definitively what happened. But hmm. I think to your point, it's kind of that... It, if at the time it wasn't going to impact the ability for Catherine to remarry, then what justification was there in lying? And lying would have been very dangerous because yeah. actually if, and, and this is something Woolsey later brings up in the divorce, if they have dispensation saying the marriage was consummated and then it turns out it wasn't, the marriage could actually be invalid because the dispensation's inaccurate, and they'd have technically needed a different kind of dispensation to cover the fact that she'd previously been engaged to Arthur, which is a whole church law thing. And that's one of the reasons why Isabella almost certainly later obtains a more general dispensation, just because she's so convinced that Catherine and Arthur probably had not slept together, that mm. she wants a, a, a coverall basis dispensation. And I think the other thing we also have to take into consideration was... Catherine's faith as well. I mean, she believed so fervently in heaven and hell. I don't believe that she would have sworn, you know, that, that she would have allowed the Pope to provide a dispensation if she knew she'd lied. It it it's kind of strikes me as, as if, you know, if we think about one of the big pieces of information that a lot of people will use in defending Anne Boleyn and sort of saying, you know, Anne Boleyn, prior to her execution, swore on the eternal damnation of her soul that she was innocent. And therefore, given the fervency of religious belief at the time, that is irrefutable proof. Then we should extend that same courtesy to Catherine. As I say, it's one of those huge what ifs. And, and I, I've always been quite on the fence about it because part of me thinks if we look at that, you know, in the late 1520s, when Catherine of Aragon was having to defend her marriage, it benefited her to lie. If Let's say that they had slept together. Let's say yeah. that they did. But in the late 1520s, she's having to defend her marriage. And one of the things that is the crux of that conversation is the marriage wasn't consummated. Then it would have benefited Catherine to lie. But again, I just don't think she would have done because of the woman that she was and her faith. And that's, I suppose, the 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 balance we've always got to try and weigh up. And it's, it is so informed in a lot of people's minds, particularly in the last few years, by the work of Philippa Gregory. I mean, that has a, made a, a huge impact in the way that people perceive Catherine's story. I think also there's, to quote a certain contemporary Duchess, there's, there's often this point about polarity, that if you love her, you have to hate me, and if you love me, you have to hate her. I think if you're a real Anne Boleyn fan, it's tempting to believe, oh, Catherine therefore must have been a liar, because it somehow makes Anne's case better. And similarly, if you're a big Anne Boleyn fan, then you're going to love Elizabeth I and hate Mary I. And if you're mm. a big Catherine Aragon fan, then you love Mary and you love... So you don't need to do history like no. that. You can look at each individual person 
and assess them on their own merits and their own contribution and recognize that life's a bit more morally gray than that. You don't make Anne's case better by talking Catherine's case down. Totally. There seems to be this very lazy trope of if you if you like one, therefore you've got to hate the other. And you, to your point, you you don't have to approach it that way. You can see both sides of the same coin. I mean, I had someone the other day talking about Catherine Howard on, on my Instagram account. And I was saying that I think she's probably on balance, the most tragic, really, of, of Henry VIII's wives in, in, what, oh, in what happened to her. And someone said, oh, you know, uh, surely the most tragic is Catherine of Aragon, but I suppose you know, you just don't like her. And I said, like, well, I've, I've, yes, I like her. And yes, I, I think her story was very tragic and I have nothing but huge respect for her. Uh, and that can live totally alongside my belief that the most tragic was still Catherine Howard. Of course it can. And Catherine of Aragon, I think, and same with Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn had a very vicious downfall, but she at least had those years of agency and influence and transformation which makes her story not a tragic story overall. Whereas someone like Catherine Howard was ultimately plucked from obscurity, a teenager, forced to marry a 50-year-old, grossly overweight, smelly man who eventually cuts her head off. I mean, it's just, mm. <laughs> there's very little um, that isn't tragic about her story. The only um, example I could think of without happening with men in history is probably Richard III and Henry VII. Although at least they did literally pit themselves against each other on the battlefield. So perhaps there's a bit more. I think you could also definitely say it with Henry VI and Edward IV as well. Because the problem with those two is that there very clearly was very serious issues with King Henry VI. There were fundamental biological, physiological things about him that by no fault of his own mm. did make him a terrible king in many respects um, and kind of justify... I mean, I've got a real soft spot for Edward IV and I think I remember, I think it was something you wrote. How much saying, of that is Max Irons? <laughs> it doesn't hurt, does it? It doesn't hurt. Uh, yeah, I mean, I literally, it was it was something you wrote saying how much of that is impacted <laughs> by Max Irons, and it's so true. But I don't know. I I've got this theory about Edward the Fourth that he was probably a decent guy on the whole. Right. I think when you look at his acceptance of and love for all of his daughters in equal measure to his sons. I don't know. Again, I could be just making huge assumptions here, but uh, there's really something about Really good treatment of his stepchildren as well. Really good treatment of his stepchildren. I just think he comes across as a nice bloke who... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not sure his, I'm not sure his, um, all of his brothers would agree with you. Well, no. That's another fascinating one, isn't it? How... And, and I didn't go into a lot of research with the Duke of Clarence with my oh, book yeah. because yeah. I didn't really need to, but... That's a big, not a what if, but why? Why was he drowned yeah. in a barrel of Malmsey wine? Mm, well, just, quite. Why? It doesn't make, it's so random. It's And if it's true, which I don't see why it wouldn't be given the, the, the record, but it's just so random. It, it's, he got to choose his, the, supposedly he got to supposedly choose. Supposedly got to choose. Um, does, it does sound like one of those stories that's too good to be true, but then things like that do happen, don't they? Yeah. I mean, I'd say one of my guilty pleasures, going back to Philippa Gregory, one of my guilty pleasures is the that BBC White Queen series. Yes, I love it. And it's just, and even though I'm quite cross with it in some ways, because it's probably the single biggest thing which has distorted perceptions of Margaret Beaufort, who is someone that I've got a lot of time for, even though, although not, I'm not uncritical about 
her entire character, of course. But even though that series has probably done more than anything else to dent her reputation, um, it, it is a real guilty pleasure. And I've, I've watched it so many times. Um, and it just yeah. it brings that excitement and that energy of that era, the drama of that era, to the fore so well. It will always have a special place in my heart. I agree completely. It's, I think it's definitely the best of the the adaptations uh, it's, i mean i think it's a lot better than the white princess and the spanish princess i hated i absolutely hated the actress who played margaret beaufort but did um, you i thought every single scene that she was in she was overacting by about 300 percent, and i just found her intensely irritating like she came on screen and i, I, think, you to, I think you meant to find her irritating though yeah like that the jutting chin like you know her chin jutting out constantly and oh i just couldn't stand amanda hale i think she's called isn't she i found her so irksome that it totally it didn't turn me off margaret beaufort as a character yeah but i found her I just thought she was dreadful. Um, That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, whereas I, I, whereas I, but equally, I loved the characterization of Margaret of Anjou. I thought it was brilliant. Yes, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So good. I, I do. The only thing I find weird about that whole book, the whole the the, the Philippa Gregory Cousinwall series, the, the adaptations, is why Margaret of Anjou is not a bigger character. Mm. Uh, because she she's really she's the she's the real red queen isn't she not Margaret totally Bayford, so oh so fascinating but go back to those that that trilogy the white queen white princess and the spanish princess although i like each of them less decreasingly and although i have big problems particularly with the way they portrayed Margaret Beaufort, I actually thought all three of the actresses were brilliant and generally speaking i think the casting's been brilliant in those series yeah, I, I would agree, with the exception of, of Amanda Hale, who I just, it, it, she just got on my nerves. Whereas, and it, it was, and it was a case of I wanted to switch off, whereas with Michelle Fairley, you were just, I mean, in The White Princess, Margaret Beaufort is such a villain. Yes, yes. She's such a villain. There's almost pantomime villain music. It's pantomime villain. Yeah. Whereas by the time you get to Dame Harriet Walter in The Spanish Princess, it's more of ruthless power player. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the white princess, I mean, she's just an all-out monster. And I also just found it really irritating, the, the costumes and stuff. I just, that yeah. really annoyed me. I'm a bit of a costume snob, I must admit. Because for me, it's one of the easiest things to get right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when you see those series or the Tudors or even, I mean, Rain, I just, I can't with Rain. I just can't. But you then see something like Becoming Elizabeth, where they were so accurate with the costumes mm-hmm. that it, it just makes the whole thing more believable. Mm, mm, mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it really does. It makes it, it makes it feel. Oh, okay, we're watching a, a drama about the Tudors. We're not watching this made-up thing. And it's one of yeah. the reasons why I actually prefer the older drama series from the seventies because they just paid more attention to yeah. those those things for definite. So one last question because I realise yeah. I've kept you for a very long time. I just, would just love to know: Was there anything that you simply just couldn't get to the bottom of with with your book? Mm, there's a really a really boring one, which is, um, I don't know where Arthur lived. No one knows. Well, no one's written about it. They do. Where Arthur lived for the first six years of his life. I, I say the book is probably Farnham Castle, and it probably was. He was only there for the first six months, and he may be there the first six years. On a bigger question, I formed an impression of Arthur. For me, Arthur emerged as a very determined young man. I believe he was someone for whom the burden 
that was on his shoulders didn't always come easily. His role in public affairs did not always come easily. But at every stage, you see this relenting determination to just carry on going, to keep going, including up until just a few days before his death, giving out arms to poor men. And I would just love to know, to meet Arthur and know whether that's true, whether that determined mm-hmm. your man in my eye, in my mind's eye, is the man that was Prince of Wales of this country from 1986 to 1502. And with his death, it's been put down as the sweating sickness. You mentioned earlier the plague. Is that something you sort of really stand by that you think it was the plague I or? Was, I don't think it was the sweating sickness. Just because okay. I, think, I think we'd have more evidence of an outbreak. I might be wrong. Put it this way. With Arthur, what, what we know is that the death toll in Ludlow, where Arthur was living, was the second highest death toll of any year of the 16th century. So that does suggest something was in the air that wasn't altogether helpful. However, we're not aware of anyone else in Arthur's household that dies. So, and obviously you'd expect the people living in the castle to be a bit more healthy for all sorts of obvious reasons around Mm. sanitation and healthcare and lifestyle. So it seems to me that there was something, that there was something in the air that probably did make its way into the castle, but Arthur succumbed and no one else did, which to me suggests a combination of disease and not quite having the health resilience to combat it as you might have expected a 50-year-old prince should have been able to do. With the sweating sickness, it was you know famous for striking someone down literally in an afternoon. They were living yeah. in close quarters. Other people would surely have caught it. But people that are t- determined to believe that Arthur and Catherine consummated their marriage have to believe Arthur was quite healthy and vigorous. As a result, they have to believe his cause of death was something that could take a healthy man and knock him down and out in a very short period of time. It's possible, but I think we'd have more evidence of a sweating sickness outbreak. So I don't. I think it's unlikely to be that. Thank you. That's uh, certainly compelling. I, I have to admit, I until now was was sort of of the opinion that it sounded like it was the sweating sickness, but that's uh, that's for me to go away and, and sort of learn more about, I guess. It's a mystery. It's a, Yeah, like so much, it's a mystery, yeah, sadly. So Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat. Thanks for having um, me. Can you tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Have you got anything in the pipeline? I have. I'm working on a, another book. I won't say too much about it at the moment but what i will say is you don't have to go very far up arthur's family tree to get uh the subject of my next book and it is someone that i've mentioned several times <laughs> in this interview although who knows that'll be true after editing but great okay well look forward to that and just as a reminder can you just tell people where they can find you yes you can find me on at royalhistorygeeks.com or on Royal History Geeks on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are soon launching the Royal History Geeks podcast. Oh, I'm sure it won't be as good as this one. I will definitely get oh. Adam as a guest before long. Thank you so much for, for no, taking the chat. It was, uh, it was great. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll speak Thank soon. You. Speak soon. Goodbye. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chest podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you may consider signing up to my weekly subscriber-only episodes, which I release every Tuesday via Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. For just £3.99 a month, you can access all episodes that I release via either patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest, or as I mentioned, via Apple Podcast subscriptions. 
Next week, I'm going to be jumping straight from the story of Prince Arthur into the story of his youngest and most elusive sibling, Princess Mary, Queen of France. Thank you again, and speak soon.